Hello and welcome to The Intersection of Things, a podcast about technology and how it's changing our lives from an intersectional feminist perspective. I am one half of the pod, Marinella. And I'm the other half, Ruth. Hi Ruth, how are you doing? How am I doing? I'm doing good, as well as can be expected, still working from home, in the house, not seeing friends in a global pandemic. But other than that, things are good. <laughs> yeah, uh, listeners, we're recording and uh, what is it the second week of the year 2021 so um as you know things have happened in the world events in all different kind of political and health worlds but you know we don't know what's going to happen in the second half of january or the rest of our lives really um so <laughs> you just we just wanted to like acknowledge the weirdness and how like History is always changing, but like world events of major that have major impacts in everybody's lives are happening, you know, by the hour, minute, day. So, yeah, we hope that this podcast, which uh, no, <laughs> we'll start in a bit. Uh, we we hope that this podcast will um, bring you a little bit of distraction, relief, and some interesting tidbits. And uh, I don't know. We hope as we record from the past and you're very likely listening to this in the future we hope you're safe and you're okay and you and your loved ones are safe and okay with all of that ruth what are we talking about this week shopping holy moly uh shopping okay so what the hell so all of this is happening and we talk about shopping how did we get inspired yeah, so we were talking about shopping because we've been partly inspired by how our habits have changed in the pandemic. You know, it's the main way to go shopping now when you literally cannot go down to the high streets and buy things. And there's been so much more online shopping. I've moved house in this time and I've been buying lots of furniture on the internet because I can't go to a furniture shop. And we were thinking, how does all this happen? What is the logistics of it all that means that for a lot of people, you can continue to get the stuff that you want. And a lot of other people are working really hard to get that to us. So yeah, we wanted to think about that and the kind of cultural and social impacts of all of those logistics that means we're getting parcels to our door. I mean, anyone who's a little bit curious has probably had this whole thing of like, how does this happen? You know, we, we talk at work a lot about the thrill of tracking your package. <laughs> um, and it's it's um yeah i feel quite curious about what are the entire what's the big all the pieces that have to move behind our awareness for something like this to be possible from like people having access to the internet to like online shopping and databases logistics transportation who produces that who trans well who transports that not only from factory to uh, to your house, but also the materials. So it's, it's I don't know, online shopping hides intentionally or not a lot of those processes. So we wanted to talk about only a little bit. We're not going to cover the entire ch supply chain process in, 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 you know, an episode, but we wanted to chat about online shopping and shopping. So, so yeah. So I don't know if you've heard that, to no one's surprise, places like Amazon have just become richer in this pandemic. Jeff Bezos, his wealth went up by how much? Like 70 billion since March to December, Jeff Bezos' worth went up by 70 billion, which is a kind of number that I can't even fathom. But one thing I know is it makes me sick. Yeah, it hasn't even been a year. Not that if it had been, it would have been okay. But um, so if everybody's hurting during this pandemic, if like jobs are down and the economy is not doing great, how come Amazon managed to make money out of this? I mean, Amazon had everything already set up. Like the thing of moving everything online is that's already what Amazon did. And everyone is already so familiar with using it to buy everything that everything else that they might normally have gone to local hardware shop or maybe still a local bookshop. Now they're just like Amazon. That was there and waiting to kind of pick up all of that need. And they've just got their efficiency down to this, like, I hate to use the word perfection, but that is what they're trying to do, is have, like, a system where nothing in it holds any inefficiencies. Right. Well, and there's this thing of, like, it's from, A, Amazon providing their own products, and also 
Amazon selling people other people's products, right? Like the whole Amazon. I I don't know much about Amazon in usage, but um, Amazon Marketplace. Basically, if you have a store, you can sell through them. So somehow they became both a seller and a mall where everyone else can sell their own brands. What's interesting about all of this too is that they're in it for the data too. You know, like a lot of the money is made, yes, selling stuff and making a profit out of that. But there's this phenomenon. I mean, very similar to Uber, what Amazon does is like lower prices, increase uh, delivery time, not delivery times, Um, well, make deliveries faster. So you like eliminate or they eliminate the competition. And little by little, that's how they get or gain uh Market share, I guess, is the, the, the word I mean, or the term. One of the things that I always find fascinating, I have this kind of, like, it's not admiration. It's that kind of like, wow, the audacity of your evil is that they, everything that they use, everything that they do, they try and own it themselves, right? So, for instance, hosting the website itself, like Amazon owns Amazon Web Services. And I don't know if you know that, but most websites are actually hosted by Amazon's servers including parlor <laughs> including government websites um yeah parlor government websites like these are all hosted on amazon web services because they want to own the systems that they use so they own their warehouses they own their hosting services and they own their own version of uber which their drivers use um, for managing deliveries and tracking how long people take to get everywhere so they don't want to be paying any other third-party services. So everything they would use, the money is kind of cycling back into Amazon rather than allowing anyone else to make profit from what they do. The only people allowed to make profit are Amazon. Right. And then there are uh, these stories about like if there is a product that is selling well, so say Ruth uh, starts selling Ruth eyeglasses and their total hit Amazon has that data. They know they know your demographic, uh, and um, there are stories of Amazon then producing their own generic Ruth-alike uh, eyeglasses. And how this is possible, I am not sure. But you know, intellectual property when you have enough money, it's never a hindrance. Yeah, there was a a popular story recently about a shoe brand called Allbirds, who were um, make a kind of ethical shoe. Um, based in New Zealand and Amazon copied this like shoe that had started on Kickstarter and wasn't like wasn't a particularly big brand but was growing and doing quite well and they saw them getting this uptick so they made an imitation version of their shoe but then the CEO wrote a public letter about this happening and wrote it with a very tongue-in-cheek like oh we don't mind if you want to copy our designs but could you try copying our ethics as well because here's all the things that we do in our supply chain like how we cut down on carbon and how we use like sustainable form of rubber so if you want to make our imitation shoe fine but please copy off our sustainable methods as well wow and which is also a marketing move that's so smart it was pretty smart it was just like rather than suing them they make a big public show of generosity that actually makes people go, oh, maybe this is why I should spend money on the real shoe. So kind of kudos to them. I respect that move. Yeah, yeah. Links in the show notes in case you want to check out this. And shoe company, please sponsor us. Uh, but speaking of shoes and fashion, so another, I mean, if Amazon is all about data, but a really good example of another triumph of logistics is fast fashion. Numbers have come up that uh, during the pandemic, loungewear and casual wear, like nobody's leaving their house, so everybody's just buying their cozy stuff, um, have surged by 49%. Holy crap. And what is it? What did you put here? Silk scarf sells up by 24% from one reselling brand. Yeah, I was enjoying some fashion stats research and saw that, um, I didn't necessarily want to give them credit, but like a, one of the big brands that resell designer wear, you can imagine who I'm talking about, um, said that their silk scarf sales went up by 24% because people wanted to look like they had something really fancy on for Zoom calls. So people were just buying more designer scarves because that's the only designer item that people can actually pay attention to. Wow. But yeah, I mean, this whole idea of fast fashion, I mean, we know malls and, you know, from like your H&M's and, H &Ms and your Zara's and all of those. I mean, 
even if people are not going out anymore, they're buying online. And one of the interesting things about this is the the whole triumph of logistics thing like goes down to like how ridiculously fast their turnarounds uh, times are from like whatever you see on the runway two weeks later it's on like H&M stores globally so like how the hell did this happen like in the past you know the fashion industry used to just run in two main seasons like basically what is it like spring summer um, and then fall winter mm -hmm. and now I mean number one now there's a lot more like they have like cruise collections and like resort collections and pre-spring and like pre-spring <laughs> isn't that <laughs> winter um But anyways, I didn't know about pre-spring. I've been missing out on my pre-spring outfits. Ruth, how are you going to prepare for spring? <laughs> it's not winter, it's pre-spring. But anyways, now they have, how they call it, micro-seasons? What's that? That's like a weekly season that some of these fast fashion brands have so they can release new clothes every single week. Of like, what is trending on Instagram that specific week? Wow. I mean, that requires an intense amount of expertise, both in like designing from whatever you see on YouTube, I guess, to creating a pattern, to sourcing materials. Like that's two weeks. That's like, it's hard to write a university paper in two weeks, let alone. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good measure of time. Yeah, like some of that is because they've just got really advanced computers that can like take an image and then like 3D design what the clothes should be, what the pattern should be. And then like a lot of these fast fashion brands, they don't do any samples. Like they don't try it out first and tweak it. They just run with what the machine creates. Like oh. copy something off an influencer, put a 3D print out, go, okay, that's the pattern, send it, make it in two days. And like, as long as it's close enough, it's close enough. Well, and also, I mean, there's the whole thing that works to their advantage that they are aware that they are creating clothes that are made to last for two weeks. So if something goes wrong, then in two weeks, you'll, you're, well, not you, but the market will forget about it and then buy the next big thing that Kim Kardashian is wearing. So it's also like the risk, I guess, gets mitigated because, you know, in a week, there's another micro season. So I guess people will move on. I don't know. But like, we talked a little bit about intellectual property. How come like the big brands don't end up suing Zara? Well, the thing is with copyright is that copyright applies to logos and like specific pictures, but not really to like quite generic shapes. And like fashion, a lot of the time, like can't claim copyright on things. Um, right. And also because um, US copyright law says you can't claim copyright on things that are inherently useful. So like you can't copyright a watering can because like the concept is a watering can is a watering can. So they're all going to be relatively the same. You can't own it. So the same actually applies to clothes because they count as just inherently useful items. So that's why a lot of fast fashion brands, they will be copying the same things as designers, but they won't put logos on them. So they won't like... Sara or like Boohoo or whatever, they don't have like a fake Nike swoosh on them, mm. but they'll still have the same silhouette. And then for the rest of it, they just put in a budget for settlements for if they get sued. Like, I mean, that's the case across so much of how business works today. And like, if we want to step outside of fashion, but go into all sorts of things, like going to food, you can just put in your budget for settlements for if something goes wrong, you know, there's food poisoning. Like that's part of how huge brands operate. They go, here's what we'll put in to our like, when we fuck up budget. And then we can just treat our workers badly. And then the settlement will come out of our settlement budget. This gave me like flashbacks to the 2000s. And what was that movie? Fight Club was a thing. Have you have you watched that movie? Of course. I've, yeah, I've watched Fight Club. What, but what? Well, that, that scene, I don't, I don't know when uh, one of them is basically, that the dude that's not Brad Pitt, he basically works for a car company and basically says like we make the math if the settlement to fix something in safety is bigger than the recall then we recall but if it's not then we just pay settlement you know if like i don't know the brakes fail or the car catches fire or something i do not remember that bit i think i got my radicalization on settlements from the tv show leverage uh where the bad guys very frequently have that. There's an episode with a toy, you know, and they're trying to, like, make get the toy recalled because it's going to kill loads of children and the evil toy company is just like, ah, oh, we don't care if the children die. But 
the people who write that show are like, yeah, but we based all of our plots around reality. Like, everything we've written is around companies who've actually done those things. It's not wow. an exaggeration. So yeah, so fashion companies, I guess, also have their little uh, rainy day budget. And so they can just, you know, take, you know, in, in, in the larger scheme of things, if get, they get sued for copyright infringement, if that's the only thing the rainy day budget gets used for, that's fine. As long as they're not, as long as they're not using toxic dyes. But, <laughs> oh, listener, guess where we're going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like copyright infringement is the least of their crimes, ultimately. I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in copyright, but yeah. The bigger stuff is how so much of those clothes are made. And it kind of appalled me when I was reading about this. It's like the layers of harm. And it's that you make these things with really damaging chemicals, even including lead, which I was really surprised because I thought that that kind of thing was banned. And that those chemicals hurt the people who make them. Mm -hmm. Then they harm the people who wear them. And then they Mm -hmm. harm the people who live near them when the things are thrown out because the waste breaks down those chemicals. And also, of course... There's all the other like emissions and logistics of moving things. But it was that point that at every single point in the chain, people are harmed, even the people who enjoy them and the people who have nothing to do with it, but just live somewhere near where the waste is thrown out. Right. Well, and also people who are selling, unpacking them, uh, you know, or people who are dealing with these clothes um, at a really big scale in warehouses. Yeah. I mean, the stories. And... I think I've, I've told you before that I've had like jeans that I bought and then it was like I could smell something I don't know if it was the dye or something try them on rash and I'm like whoa so it took a few washes to uh this was years ago a few washes to to get rid of that but I was yeah it got me curious and yeah apparently they do spray um clothes with like pesticides just so mold doesn't grow because, you know, they're shipped in huge containers and the weather <laughs> is the weather. Um, from moths to mold to any uh, rats, all of those things. So, yeah, your clothing has to withstand all of that way before they reach you. And But why are we making such a big emphasis on fashion? Well, um, the stats say that one in six people work in the global fashion industry. Like one in six people. That's what, almost like a billion people uh, in the world. And... Um, and the fashion industry itself is built on exploiting people at every single level, as you were saying, from like massively underpaid labor of uh, women and children, so also illegal labor. And we've heard these stories from like factories collapsing in like Bangladesh, uh, Mexico after the earthquake recently, recently, and in the other big earthquake in 1985. We've had stories of shady employers who have terrible working conditions and, of course, who gets affected the most. You know, like you have stories of 200 women who work at uh, garment industries or garment-making factories dying because nobody bothered to supervise working conditions. And when, you know, things like the pandemic also happens and sales go down, who's going to look after all of these jobs that eventually need to keep going if we want to feed people so it's a big yeah the fashion industry is a huge huge industry and uh and it's very interesting to to see who is valued along the lines of production i i find that thing so strange about fashion and i do want to kind of put in an aside here that we're having this whole conversation and i also really like fashion like i think i don't want to speak for you but i think you also like fashion mm-hmm. and or at least like are really interested in like design and the creation and i think there's so many beautiful things So I'm doing this in the sort of same way that I critique Harry Potter, which is I can like a thing and critique the thing at the same time. It doesn't mean that I just am going to stand here and say, oh, the fashion industry, it's rubbish. I have nothing to do with it. But you can like a thing and want it to be a lot better. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I could go on endlessly about why I am so curious and interested about fashion from like and you can take the whole thing about like what's the thing that everybody uses and every most people in the world every day are wearing something all day every day from that to like how it alters the shape of your body which is also very inherently political from material production to like so it's it's a very rich and very beautiful field but it also is one that kind of embodies a lot of the evils of capitalism and almost like a shameless way so it's it's a super rich field so yeah like like you um like so interested you know we're talking about 
mass marketing and, and fast fashion. Interestingly enough, I don't know if you've noticed that a lot of the bigger quote-unquote luxury brands now almost base their entire or a big part of their messaging on how they preserve craft. So all of a sudden, the luxury, instead of having runway to stores uh, designs in two weeks, the luxury is not having access to the Kim Kardashian dress, but it's having access to the beautifully Spain tanned leather that was, I don't know, crafted, like the, I don't know, the bag or whatever was crafted with like artisanal techniques that have been passed from generation to generation for like 300 years and that take an artisan, I don't know, 40 hours just for your one little wallet, right? So that becomes the luxury. I think the bigger question is in the fashion industry, if you have to preserve craft, you also have to ask who destroyed or who or what is destroying that craft that needs to be preserved and then basically acquired the, the status of luxury. I don't know, this is more like the effect of mass marketing, industrialization. Um, like you cannot blame people for buying five dollar shoes if that's what salaries can can afford yeah you cannot blame people yeah buying five dollar shoes if you are not asking for fair wages and a living wage just like what we talked about with food before and i think the thing with the craft and you know preserving traditional techniques and all of that is those people who are doing that you know i think that's that's great for them but they get kind of placed on this pedestal of being like serious creators, seamstresses, craft workers. And then the people who are making the clothes in the factory in Bangladesh are referred to as being garment workers right. rather than seamstresses. And that language seems to imply less skill, but actually those people are still literally making clothes. And I, I just find it really strange that that isn't talked about or recognized that that is actually the skill. It's not like they're not skilled. And I, I started thinking about that because I'd seen someone on Twitter making an interesting point about electronics. And that was how this perception that tech workers in Silicon Valley know, know all about technology, but the people who make the phones don't and aren't tech workers. But to be making a phone, you have to actually understand what you're doing and the electronics in there. And I was thinking about how surely that logic of if you're making a phone you're actually a tech worker applies to people who make clothes like also you're logically a seamstress but it's just we give them we i generally mean like in the west in the media a different terminology that devalues them but i i'm not convinced that i buy into that it's like woof woof smells like racism i'm, I'm just making a reference to the racist uh sniffing dog on Twitter, there's an account that every time there's a dog whistle, they tag the dog. And if it's, well, not if, like 99% of the time is a dog whistle for racism, the account just replies woof woof. Anyways, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the more you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's racism is a huge part of this, right? If a accessory garment is made in Italy by what's assumed, and big thing here, assumed, Italian or white European hands, whatever that means, it suddenly acquires more value. And and the big thing here is assumed because there's also this other terrible industry of um, under the table migrant. La like there's some really cool documentaries, especially for example for leather towns in Italy. All the tanneries are all of those things. How like there's a lot of people. Uh, I don't know if it's from like Senegal. Anyways, there's this terrible mar market of, I don't want to say slave labor because it's different, but it is exploitative, terrible labor. So even that is, it's, and a lot of it, or industries get away with it because it's not the big brand that is employing them. It's, these are contractors and subcontractors that eventually will go or provide uh, both materials and the manufacturing to, to the bigger brands. So it's really hard to track. And um, But yeah, anyways, we could go on. And all of this was really reminding me about Naomi Klein, who's done tons of writing and books on these topics over the years. And I wanted to find a quote that I'd seen going around on Tumblr. And of course, Tumblr is impossible to do research on. So once you've found something, you can never find it again. Um, but... She's talked a lot about how when she gives presentations or people read her book, they come to her and always ask, oh, well, what can I do? What can I shop differently? 
even when she will talk for the whole thing about the importance of collective power, she says, like, give those talks in the, in America and people will put their hands up and just be like, so where should I shop? Mm. She's like, it's not about making those individual choices that fundamentally your individual shopping choice is like, yeah, fine, do what's do whatever you think is best. But they're not how you change everything. It has to be about laws and regulations and unions and collective power and doing things together. And I have, I, this is like a, also an aside, but this is generally what I think about boycotts as well. It's not that boycotts are good or bad enough themselves, but you can't do a boycott on your own. You have to make it clear you're doing a boycott. It has to be a big announced thing because you can't just quietly be like, I've decided to boycott this brand. They don't care. Like, yeah. no. Yeah, I, I like that approach. And before we move on, speaking of labor and fashion, I've noticed every time there's some documentaries about um, the big fashion houses and they go into the ateliers and like talk to the people making those things. A very interesting bit for me is sometimes they ask them, how long have you been working here? They've been working at those workshops for 25 years, 30 years, like in a world. And this is for like big luxury houses, right? In a world where like even in tech, people are like, oh, you're, you know, on average, people change jobs every five years. Just to see the difference between this whole like fast paced, quote unquote, dog eat dog move fast and break things of the of, like the everyday versus what the bigger, super uber wealthy houses have, which is basically they're able to employ people for decades on end living in very expensive cities. I don't know, it kind of gives you the contrast between the narratives of what does what it means to be or to have like a stable business or like a stable or a responsible well, like what it takes to be sustainable, not only obviously environmentally, but in terms of caring for your employees. Um, yeah. Anyways, that's uh, I just found that fascinating. Um, yeah, people are the core and the soul of every system. So you care after people, your system will be healthy. But anyways, let's move kind of away from fashion. So we've talked about Amazon and then fast fashion. Um, another big winner in the pandemic has been Wish, that Amazon competition website, which it's almost another triumph of data mining. The fast fashion is all about logistics. Wish it's all about the data. Yeah. Wish is fascinating. Most downloaded e-commerce app. Yeah. So Wish makes a bunch of uh, its money through doing ridiculously hyper-targeted advertising. And that's where it spends almost all of its money on the advertising, not on the product. Then they, some of those adverts, these like hyper-targeted adverts end up being really, really weird. Like there was a viral tweet a while ago about someone being advertised a bag of worms. They can uh -huh. go and wish. Why? Yeah. Who knows what the algorithm said that said that that would be the thing that they would want. But wow. yeah, I think what I found really interesting was I was reading an interview with some, um, like the director of marketing at Wish and they obviously heard about this and they were like, yeah, that's great. Like, we don't mind if you get advertised for like bizarre things because that just adds to the attention. Yeah, I was going to say like, maybe they were like, yeah, let's advertise a bag of worms to this like... I don't know, influencer on Twitter who talks about fair trade all the time, then this will become a viral tweet. I mean, I don't know if that's an algorithmic thing, but definitely a marketing decision. Yeah. So I also, I just want to give credit to Hillary George Parkin, who's done a lot of research on Wish because I found the research and work they've done really interesting because they were talking about how Wish's whole concept is really different from Amazon. And that's kind of why they're being successful is they don't want you to come to their site with a specific product in mind. Like most people go on Amazon, like I need a new doorbell and that's what you search for. Whereas Wish wants you to open it with nothing in your mind and just scroll through and buy something shiny. So they don't put names on a lot of their products. They just put pictures hmm. and they just kind of throw you an endless stream of random stuff. And this marketing person said the goal was to make it like going to the mall where you just go for a good time and just buy right. random stuff, but on your own with your phone. Wasn't there um, recently also a, an integration of uh, Wish and TikTok? I didn't hear about that. Yeah, I, I think I cannot remember the specifics. It just came to mind. But I think Wish is the first big retailer to have that kind of integration with TikTok or any, maybe any other brand. 
basically it made it so that if you're logged into Wish and you have a TikTok account, you say you're like just scrolling through or whatever you do on TikTok, um, looking at influencers, and if there's a brand integration, you can buy from TikTok immediately. Like it's like, oh, I like Ruth's dancing video and she's wearing this like I don't know Wish socks. You can just tap it, so I buy them without having to leave the platform. And you know how fast TikTok moves in terms of content. So yeah. what they want to do is uh, like the um, mythical reducing the barrier of effort from you and your money leaving you. So yeah, it's and I think it's one of the first integrations of their kind because it's literally so fast like i haven't seen it in use i have seen screen captures but um i can't imagine just the impulse buys of that because again if the socks are like one dollar people will just click on it right yeah but like imagine you know 20 minutes on tiktok how many impulse buys ah it's just uh not Bloody the hell yeah no i i was mostly aware of it from the uh the wish haul meme on youtube what is that ruth you know when people like, here's all the random stuff that I got from Wish. So they take those random TikTok impulse buys and then make a YouTube video about it. And it's kind of... It's one of the things that I find really strange is it's, it's self-aware that the stuff is crap. Like, there was this, um, like, I bought a wedding dress from Wish video that um, Safia Nygaard did. And, you know, it got, like, millions of hits. And, like, she knows it's crap. That's why she's doing it. And it's yep. kind of like... Hey, look at this random stuff I bought. One of, one of my favorite videos, and I, ah, my brain has just totally forgotten the name of the YouTuber, but I will find it for the credits, was from someone who makes imitation historical clothing. And then they did like a side-by-side -side comparison of like their clothing and like versions of that from which, just like ripping into it. Yeah. So these like, you buy the, the crappy products to take the piss out of the crappy products, but you did still buy them. So which is still making the money and so they're quite happy with that system. Well, and then there's that thing, speaking of integrations, Wish is also uh, basically a YouTube partner. I'm not sure what the tiers are there, but like YouTube videos that have Wish in their name or content will, this is allegedly, but the stats kind of show it, will be given preference in the algorithm. So like even channels that are super demonetized because they talk about sex education or like feminist topics or whatever, if they do one of those wish haul uh, videos, they've found and they've shown that those videos get promoted in the algorithm. So and also, I mean, people love watching those things for some reason. I mean, they're kind of funny. I've watched a couple. They are kind of funny because the whole thing is like, look how crap this is. But at the same time, I don't know, it's basically what you just mentioned. They're still buying it. It's not like they can return it. Or maybe they can, who knows. But it's just, it's so strange. And, and a lot of these videos also bank on, like, for example, I think it's the What's the Safe Word channel. When they went through Wish and their hole, they found, because uh, one of the guys works or used to work at Mr. S Leather in San Francisco, they found that some of the things they were buying, I don't know, from like a harness or a puppy hood or something, were like ripoffs, like blatant ripoffs of what they designed at Mr. S. Obviously, they put it on and they're like, oh, this smells terrible. They they were getting a headache, like, materials are terrible. But still, right, it was this whole, like, I don't know, it's like the amusement of look at how crap this is. And at the same time, it almost works as a 20-minute ad. Because all you're talking about is this show and tell. Like, and you know, there's going to be people who being like, eh, you know, I could pay $400 for this. Or 20 It's just fascinating. Yeah, I have this tone in my voice, I think, where it's like, I sound kind of admiring even though i don't like it because mm. sometimes i hear these kind of things and you're just like there is a level of ingenuity here i kind of wish people were using the brain power that came up with some of this stuff to do useful things for the world <laughs> but i can recognize some smarts were involved oh yeah yeah and i mean and a point on on youtube and these videos that the whole videos because it's not only for Wish, like they do have like shopping hauls and unboxing videos, the unboxing video phenomenon. I mean, this is a podcast about the internet, you know, in the end. But that bit about the cultural aspect of 
the audience like manufacturing desire for things it's fascinating to me it's like i don't know listeners if you've seen this like unboxing videos and it could be from anything it could be like unboxing the new iphone 15th and it's you know they spend 10 minutes carefully opening the box going through the little manual from that to like this weed whacker for my garden <laughs> and and it's a review like the genre of videos of like reviews and it's kind of fascinating because a lot of them are not sponsored it's just people making them some of them do insert amazon affiliate links so if their audience ends up buying the product through their links they get basically a commission but again this whole cultural production and the cultural conversation about the, the creating of the desire for products is it's really fascinating to me because it's not the companies it's the audience kind of banking on it i don't know like you said yeah. it's the smarts behind it or the the amount of work that goes into that like must be profitable for them i mean it is the thing that they've got everybody doing work for them for free and yeah. that everyone's kind of playing into that game and i feel like we could go off on some stuff that i think we've we've possibly talked about before with like celebrities and influencers and like it's it's much more accessible to become an influencer mm-hmm. or like which i kind of in How easy am I using that phrase that came around fairly recently? But it's easier to get sponsored. It's easier to get brand attention than ever right. before. So I think there's a lot of it that it feels like a way to make money, but at the same time it's not that you're making money, it's that you're making money for them. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. So but okay, so we've we've talked about Wish ripping off and Amazon ripping off other people. Is there any resistance there? Like if you're a if you're an Etsy creator, and you're being ripped off. Is there any way to be like, "Hey, respect me?" Yes. Okay. I w- I want to talk about what I call the invoking the god of Disney story, which the was god of Disney. The god of Disney, one of the great powerful forces in the universe right now. Don't they own Marvel? Yes. And Star Wars. That's a lot. Holy crap. Okay. So, go on. The god of <laughs> all of these cultural products? Yeah. So, there's this algorithmic automated t-shirt generation problem so when an independent yeah that looks like the the uh problems of the 21st century so let's set Uh the scene let's create the moment so you're an independent artist on twitter and you've made a beautiful picture and you post it to share with your fans and your followers and people reply this is awesome i'd love this on a t-shirt i wish you had this on a t-shirt mm-hmm. and for some some reason they people who create these um basically rip off t-shirt brands scrape where that where that said i want this on a t-shirt and f- people find that their pictures and their art ends up on t-shirts on a bunch of like random crappy websites it just scrapes whatever people say i want this on a t-shirt and puts this on a t-shirt and sells it because it assumes there's a demand indie artists have been complaining about this for a really long time and haven't had any success in getting them taken down because they just don't have the power if you're just an independent artist so they started this campaign in december 2019 to create basically t-shirts that would invoke disney like a god to come down <laughs> by making t-shirts that had mickey mouse on them that saying like i stole this t-shirt or like other kind of intellectual property characters also nintendo ones but a lot of mickey mouse like mickey mouse t-shirts to say this t-shirt is copy and write infringement and i will pay all costs and then they got their fans to reply i want this on a t-shirt um i would totally wear this and then they happened the wow. uh, the t-shirts appeared on these t-shirt websites so you could actually buy a t-shirt with mickey mouse saying this t-shirt is copyright infringement and then did disney uh sue i don't know the the t-shirt brands oh, this is the thing like it's a great story but i didn't find a lot about disney coming in and taking them down but i did find other kinds of things like where the media attention of this story was effective in then right. getting those companies to change policies which is often a thing about public action these days is that it's the media that makes things happen because nobody wants bad press. Right. But I think yeah, it's hard to know whether Disney did or did not get involved for sure, but it's a pretty pretty cool idea. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting to see these little pockets of resistance. Like there is this other thing that I learned about recently and I, I don't know, I used to call it like ghost cards. I don't I don't think that's the term because you looked for that term and you couldn't find it. So it has a different name, but it's basically 
this like quote unquote uh how do they call it denial of inventory attack so basically again we're talking about online shopping say you are a terrible you know politician president with a lot of power that can get a lot of people to do something online or in the real world and you sell branded merchandise you also have pissed a lot of the world off <laughs> for your terrible policies. So a way to get back at these people or at these companies, sometimes a company that's doing something terrible, is to mobilize people to go into the site, select the product, say a terrible hat, like select it and just add it to your shopping cart and then never check out. Because the way inventories happen, and there are ways to mitigate this, but roughly, you know, if you only have 1 million hats to sell, and 5 million people come to your website, you cannot promise 5 million people that the hat is available, even though you haven't processed the order or whatever. So if you get a million people to add that hat to their shopping cart temporarily, it gets out of the inventory. So you can basically, again, you can basically trick stores, online stores, to have their databases uh, mark their inventory as already sold out without having to buy it all is just a matter of like continuing because they also now I don't know if you've seen some places have like time checkouts just the same way they do with concert tickets <laughs> remember concerts anyways <laughs> um yeah so kind of to avoid that it's like after you know adding this you only have 10 minutes or like or you won't have access to this until you pay for it like they've had some some ways to work around the ghost cards oh and and one of the reasons that i heard the term ghost cards is because it's basically someone buying and then abandoning the card as if they had been a ghost and disappeared so yeah this happened obviously to trump and people were just like kind of going through his inventory putting adding it to the cards and um that happened and i don't think it it worked 100 percent, but it was it's always like overloading servers and interrupting the flow so it is still a protest a prank and got people pissed off the right people pissed got pissed off so yay and it's just interesting how like the mundane technicalities of how shopping carts online work can be used to uh, do activism so it's like as you mentioned like hacks without hacking yeah i think that's what i find really fascinating about both of those things is people looking at an existing system and just like messing with it yeah. without yeah exactly hacks without hacking without without needing to have complicated technical skills without needing to learn how to code you can just kind of look at a system and go where can i hammer into this like where can i twist it mm -hmm. and i applaud them yeah so there's a lot of resistance and i think the last little bit i don't think it's a resistant technique but it's definitely one of those like the audience giving feedback that's useful is uh the whole cultural phenomenon of reviews yeah i think of reviews i'm calling them like product marginalia Ooh, term yeah i invented this term um yeah, you know, like marginalia is like the comments people leave on the side of books. Yeah, I like marginalia for products. And before in the past, before online shopping, like you didn't see each other's customer reviews, like maybe customer reviews were just something you would leave on a form. But now they become publics, so they become a work of art or something like performed. You know, you're mentioning YouTube videos, but like Amazon reviews, there was that whole thing when Bic, the pen company made pens for lady hands. Oh, um, <laughs> and like the comedy reviews were just so fantastic so there's that and then there's like the phenomenon of fake reviews where people leave reviews for their own stuff being like mm, yes big pens for her are actually fantastic and all the ladies i know say their hands needed them so it says you know bob like, yeah that kind of thing and yeah and then there's the whole thing about like reviewing your uber driver you have to give five stars so you're an asshole because yeah. reviews are taken really seriously by some companies or they don't account for um things like racism i think yeah. I, don't know, I have this flashback i don't know if it was a paper or actually was part of a research thing in university but we looked at uber reviews and how like drivers that were non-white would get on average fewer stars than other drivers just because they weren't friendly enough for, you know, like those 
a racist assumptions and perceptions and expectations of service. So yeah, all of a sudden, reviewing drivers enacted forms of employment discrimination because who would get prioritized in the algorithm, etc. But like then Uber would not have responsibility on them because it was the user or the customer who reviewed it. So it's like, anyways, I could go on. But yeah, reviews. I mean, in those examples, it's the thing of giving people too much power. It shouldn't be that someone can leave a four-star review. Like a racist person should not be able to leave a four-star review and cost them on their job. Like, Mm -hmm. that's deeply fucked up. Yeah. Our note here is like, we consume each other's consumerism. That's the creation of desire. (laughs) What a note. Yeah. It's the whole thing, isn't it, that we were talking about? It's the videos, it's the unboxing, it's the wish haul, it's the writing a comedic review for an Amazon product that maybe no one will read, but maybe the one person who finds it and screen caps it and puts it on Twitter and then it goes viral. Mm -hmm. Like, the consumerism itself is a huge part of our entertainment, even whilst we can critique it. Yeah. It's the outfit of the day photos on Instagram. It's the creating your... Oh, this sounds terrible, but like the whole phenomenon of of creating an individual's personal brand online without it being a brand, but it's literally, that's what a lot of Instagram accounts are, is like the self as a brand and how these forms of consuming and buying, how they kind of come together as part of culture. They are culture. So yeah, listener, what do you think? (laughs) Let us know. I feel like I need to give a shout out to The Anthropocene Reviewed here, which is probably my other favorite podcast. Friend of the um, pod, John Green. Friend of the pod, John Green. I mean, imaginary friend of the pod. But John, if you want to come on the pod, you're welcome. The door is open. Yeah, the Anthropocene reviewed reviews facets of the human-centered world on a five-star scale to do their tagline <laughs> for them. Yeah. Um, again, you're welcome. Um, but like, it takes that review model and then applies it to grass and geese and a hot dog eating contest and cholera oh the notes app was probably my favorite it's so, so john good. green wrote a, an, an essay on the notes app on your phone it's so good cannot wait for the book this is not sponsored by them speaking of that we i know we're creating desire for it yeah i feel like we're getting really messy here because now we're reviewing someone else's podcast called the anthropocene reviewed in our little section on reviews i think there is a podcast called the anthropocene reviewed reviewed not are to you get kidding me meta i think i've seen it That's... it's so meta i it, Shout out to them too. I have not listened to it, but I've encountered it when searching. So, yeah. Okay, that, the is, that is good review on my list. Last little bit, this might not make it. I was, um, because of pandemic and all of that, I don't know if you caught this. I think it was more a TikTok thing. The TikTok cardigan, the sweater. I am so missing all these TikTok things. So, yeah, so. Like, <laughs> <laughs> We're just sound old, Ruth. Have you heard I'm what so the old. young ones are doing? No, um, I mean. You know, I'm a fan of uh, Jonathan Anderson, the guy who made the show in a box. The, uh-huh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Really good designer, in my opinion. Uh, I think it was one of the... Yeah, he's creative director of Lueve. And I think it was that. It was either that or his personal brand. I don't know. They have a, a, a knit sweater. Just, you know, something that I associate, like my grandma could have knit that. Just patches, like squares. Just imagine making little squares of, of knit and then you put assemble them together in a sweater. Harry Styles wore the sweater for, like a, I think, a rehearsal or something for Saturday Night Live or some big show, Harry Styles of One Direction fame. And obviously he was wearing this huge, very colorful, because it was like patches of red and yellow and blue and green. Like it was very playful, oversized. Again, imagine a grandma or someone, you know, making a huge cozy sweater. TikTok, or super fans of uh, Harry Styles, looked at it and they were like, I can make that. So it created a whole phenomenon of kids, quote unquote, but like teens and kids knitting, learning how to knit, because uh, it was a very simple sweater. And even the brand, even the brand created a video on how to make your own. And we're talking, this sweater was probably like 900 euros, like intensely expensive. But kids took to learning how to knit, created it, and they were showing off their self, like their self-knit, their self-made sweaters. And they look very similar. They look, but it was very interesting to me, both like how something went viral but also then eventually the brand was like oh no we're gonna show you like this is how you knit like you make your own and and that's the story of the tiktok sweater harry styles so again cultural yeah that was that was that was cute um but you know and this was again all 
tied in to pandemic, like having time at home, you know, needing to be away from screens, knitting, but yet being connected to your idol or whoever, like Harry Styles. So yeah, and that's that. So with all of this, is there anything that you're taking with you from this episode to posterity in your head and in your soul? <laughs> Ruth, what are you taking with you? I think the bit where you were talking about the fashion brands who claim we preserve craft and then you ask, but who destroyed it? I think really resonates with some of the other stuff I've been thinking about with the tech industry, with this kind of prodigal tech bro concept, which uh, Maria Farrell wrote an amazing piece, which I can also put in the show notes. And it was all about how these people caused all these problems with surveillance capitalism, and now write the books about how they caused the problems and are fixing them. And get to kind of trade off solving the problems that they were part of creating, rather than the people who never did the problems and were critiquing things from the start don't get the book deals, they don't get to go on television. And it was reminding me of that and kind of that there's this point that big brands and successful people seem to be able to do which is just kind of ride the wave of doing something bad and the moment it starts to be a problem they can get onto the actually we're the solution now and yeah. like just reinvent themselves that way. Yeah, it just slightly enrages me, this kind of like prodigal capitalism, just kind of reinvent yourself as the solution to a problem you created. Yeah, and and I bet we're gonna start seeing it more like as global warming starts showing a lot more widespread impacts, especially in like the West, because of course the West doesn't really care if the Southern Hemisphere floods, as long as New York is safe. But the second we start seeing that, you'll start seeing, we're probably already seeing, companies kind of sell the solution to global warming. Not the solution, but like, fix your house so it doesn't flood. Or, you know, it's almost like you got to benefit from warming the planet and now you get to benefit from selling the solution. Ah. And of course, the way attention span works is almost, those are the the people, industries, or companies that will be held as heroes for doing, quote-unquote, something different. Let's not talk about Tesla, but yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, my eye roll didn't get captured on the audio. True. What about you, Marinella? What are you taking away? Uh, I think, okay, this is very kind of ephemeral, but like the thing that you pointed uh, that was also happening to me is like this weird both fascination and rejection. Like there is... The, the, the fascination for like the brain power, creativity, ingenuity that comes from the way these companies, I don't know, manage to, again, to manufacture desire and, and prompt people to do something. I mean, consuming is very cultural, so it doesn't surprise me. But still, just to see how creative, like the whole thing about Wish, which I didn't know, that didn't have titles. I think a lot of the titles are more algorithms, are more for Google than for you as a human. Yeah. It's this weird, like, terror slash fascination. It's almost like watching a horror film, even though I don't like them. It's, yeah, it's the evil genius. I do not like or agree, but you have to be like, wow, with so much smarts. Yeah. (laughs) I've been doing something very different, but yet here we are. Sometimes we can be fascinated by the things we think are horrible. Yeah, yeah. I'm, so I'm not taking away the horrible things. I'm taking away our reaction to it. And it's, I don't know, I'll, I'll think more about it, but it's it's, it's interesting. It's this ambivalent uh, approach to, to these things. So, um, but yeah, with that, yeah, let's wrap it up. Uh, listeners, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us. All of the notes about this episode will be in the show notes, which can be found where? theintersectionofthings.com you can also follow us on twitter at thingsintersect um, if uh, people want to find you Ruth I'm on twitter at nescient n-e-s-i-e-n-t cool. and what about you? Uh, at thingsintersect on twitter thank you for potting with me thank you and thank you listeners uh, we'll see you next time bye 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 <laughs>